You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streams. Yes, we have changed our name. We are now NRM Streams, so I guess we forget the old name because I had to rewrite the new one on my paper. And thanks to the amazing work of Alan, we will thank him that uh, even if you still put in New Radio Media, you will get hooked into all the archives and shows till everything is completely switched over. But we are now NRM Streams, or plain NRM. So if you have the app, or if you don't have the app, so now you'll go to the to your app store, to Apple Play, whichever ones you use, and you will type in N. RM streams and that will get you to the app and everything will be fantastic and I think they're trying to create new words or maybe it's NRM streams streamcast I think I got it wrong it's NRM streamcast but I'm practicing so one last time NRM streamcast but again NRM is good enough Okay, so after we made our thank yous now I got the new name mostly right so we're good to go this week's Torah portion happens to be my bar mitzvah portion. So sometimes you wonder, like, who cares? Most people think it's a big deal. It's their bar mitzvah portion. They remember the hundreds of hours spent uh, trying to learn how to read their Torah portion. I remember a cousin one time, I said, oh, you did a good job, uh, but you barely know how to read. He said, I can't read. I memorized the whole thing. So, uh, But no, I knew how to read it. So um, that's my Torah portion. And it's a fun Torah portion, lots and lots of stuff in this Torah portion. We're not going to get through too much of it, because today we are trying something new. Um, today's uh, we're going to be interviewing um, actually a Rabbi Mordechai Wecker and a Michael S. Weissman, Ph.D. They collaborate on a book called Therapy According to God, a rabbi and psychologist discuss life. So they wanted... And we will actually Skype both of them simultaneously. Um, they're obviously going to be in different offices. And that should be quite entertaining. And hopefully we'll learn a lot. And again, when you'll see the book, you'll read the book, you'll find that that's how they write the book, that the psychologist goes over the case study and then either he will quote or the, or the rabbi himself will say something from the Torah that's applicable and that's how the book works. And let's see. Hopefully, that's how uh, these two amazing people will uh, will have a discussion. But that, of course, is for a later part of today's schedule. It's also the end of the school year, so lots of exciting things are happening. I had to, uh, I have to. I wanted to. Each class in the school um, has to do some type of presentation. They call it the year-end project. Again, it's the last few days of the school year. You need something exciting instead of just, you know, more of the same. So this year they must be doing, I'm not sure what they're doing actually, cities. They One son was on a farm and they did, um, um, what's the name of that book? The Little Red Hen or something? Uh, Chicken Little? 
I don't remember. It's the chicken that goes ahead and makes the cake, and nobody helps her make the cake the whole way through. And um, and then when it's time to eat, everybody wants to help. So you should know that story from when you were little. So my second grader did that skit, and I went to watch, and he had his mask. He held his mask on with one hand, and the paper was on another hand, so his whole face was covered anyway. So I can say I saw him, because he for sure didn't see me. Another son did something with blasting, with mining, but... They just have a great, it's just a good experience. They, they learn something through hands-on. They feel good about the end of the school year. They're not running away from school the last week to say, eh, who cares? What are we learning? It doesn't matter. They're just really having a good, good time at the end of the school year. And hopefully, many of your children have already ended the school year. Hopefully, they had a great school year. Um, now no more homework, time for the summer, maybe they go to camp, maybe go on trips. So hopefully lots of good stuff and good time to be spent with our children. But let's get into the Torah portion. So um, last week's Torah portion, which we did not discuss, um, every prince of, the tri- of each tribe, so there's 12, will bring a special sacrifice or did bring a special sacrifice as an inauguration for the tabernacle. Now, they didn't all bring it the same day. God said, let each one bring on his own day. So for the next 12 days after the tabernacle is set up, um, a leader of each tribe, Judah is first, and then uh, Yisachar, and then Zavulin, all the way through the list. And um, they each bring, what's interesting is they each brought the exact same sacrifice. Same amount of cows, same amount of goats, same amount of rams and sheep and spices and and a gold bowl or silver plates. Whatever they brought, it was all exactly the same. Which, if you think about it, is a fantastic idea. Because if everybody comes on their own day with their own present, so whatever I brought yesterday, the next guy has to one-up me. And the guy after him has to one-up him. So everybody's trying to outdo the other one, which is really not the point. The point is we all want, we want to have peace. We talked about a lot last week, what we call shalom and togetherness and achtos. And the only way that's going to happen is if we show we're all equal. We're all going to bring the exact same thing. I'm not showing I'm better than you. You're not trying to show you're better than me. It was a beautiful um, way that each one inaugurated the temple, the tabernacle. Interesting when we say 12 tribes, there's confusion. Why? Because Jacob has 12 sons. It's 12 sons, 12 tribes. One of those sons is Levi. Okay, let's put that on the side. Jacob tells Joseph at the end of his life, your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are also tribes. Now we got 13. So what do you do? So what happens is, depending for what, there's the number 12 is, is it. There's 12 tribes. There's not 13 tribes. But it depends for what. When we camp around the tabernacle, when we divvy up land in Israel, there are 12 tribes, not including the tribe of Levi or the Levites. They're almost like a, like an honor guard. They won't camp with the other tribes. They'll camp directly around the tabernacle. They will not get their own land in Israel. They're going to have cities. They've got to live somewhere. But they don't, they're not farmers. They're working in the temple. They have a totally different job. So in that way, the Levites are no longer called a tribe, and Ephraim and Manasseh, which is Joseph times two, um, move in, and that makes 12. However, on the breastplate that the high priest would wear, called the Choshen, there are 12 stones, 
and Levy has a name, and Joseph has a name. So on that, you don't have Ephraim and Manasseh. So it depends for what. Okay, with all this background now, so the 12 tribes, not including the Levites, have all brought sacrifices. Aaron, the high priest, Aaron is, uh, I don't want to say jealous, he feels bad because his tribe did not get to bring any type of inauguration, present, sacrifice, and if he's not being told to bring one, he can't bring one. So this Torah portion starts out that that God tells Moses to tell Aaron that you will light the menorah, the candelabra, that golden menorah, seven seven branches. Uh, You will light that every day. So the Medrash explains that this is the inauguration process for the tribe of Levi. The Levi tribe, and also the priests for that matter, not only do they get to have an inauguration process, but they do it every day, twice a day. No, I'm sorry, that's something else, it's twice a day. The menorah is once a day, every night, they light it, and it stays lit through the night. Some say it's lit even into the day, but that we're not uh, getting involved in. So the Levites have this everyday inauguration. And that satisfied Aaron. What's interesting is we're talking about inauguration. So you want to tell me you have to, you know, like people, uh, they, they break a bottle of champagne over a boat when they have a new boat, right? People do stuff, and then that's the inauguration. You don't do it every day. So why would you think that lighting this candelabra, lighting this menorah, would automatically become an inauguration when it's an everyday process? So you could say it was the first time. Okay, but it's going to be an everyday thing. So, like, who cares? So, interesting enough, um, in the Second Temple, we're all familiar, I hope. If not, you got to go back to some of my older shows around December time, where we talk about Hanukkah or Hanukkah. The, the, the word Hanukkah actually means to, like, to uh, inaugurate. Because what happened was, in the middle of the Second Temple— the Greeks had completely taken over the land of Israel. They had turned the temple into their own um, temple for their Greek idols. And the Jews were not uh, practicing in the temple any kind of sacrifices. Anybody who was religious was on the run, hiding in caves, um, out in the countryside. You were not out in front of everybody. It was not happening. So the famous Matisio and Yehuda Maccabee, Judah the Maccabee, um, they w- went to war, a small group of people. We know the story of Hanukkah. They had a small group, and they defeated the mighty Assyrian army. And after three years of battles, they march up to the Temple Mount, and they, they clean out the whole thing, get rid of all the idols, make a new altar, um, clean the place up, purify the place. And they still weren't in complete control because there was a fortress next to the Temple Mount that they did not have control over yet. But they had to make a new inauguration. Now, what was interesting was they were looking and searching for pure oil. Again, that's part of the story, and they find one little jar of oil. Hopefully, you know the story. They find one little jar of oil. That jar lasts for a full um, seven days—I'm sorry, eight days. And therefore, you have the holiday of Hanukkah, where we light our menorahs for eight days. But that—now, let's look at the whole picture— that becomes a new inauguration. They had to re-inaugurate the temple. How did they re-inaugurate the temple? They did it through the menorah. 
they did it by looking for pure oil, finding pure oil, and being able to light the menorah. So, really, this Torah portion is hinting to Aaron the following. It's true, the 12 tribes all got to inaugurate, and you did not. But you should know, a time will come in the future where the priests will be the ones to inaugurate the temple, and they will do it through the menorah. So, uh, so therefore, that becomes Aaron's, the, Aaron, the, right, the high priest, that becomes his way of inaugurating, not today, not at the beginning of this week's Torah portion, but there will be a time in the future, which was the story of Hanukkah, where they get to inaugurate. So that becomes the beginning of this week's Torah portion. Okay, time is already flying. I'm looking at my notes, and I'm skipping one thing after the next. And um, let's talk about one other thing. We have uh, four or five minutes. Let's talk about it. And hopefully my guests will relate or help us out with some stuff about what I'm going to talk about. So we've, we've, we're traveling. We've left Mount Sinai. God gave us the Torah, gave it to Moses. Uh, Moses explaining everything to us. We've been camped by Mount Sinai for about a year. It's time to leave. We leave. And really, we're supposed to be heading towards the land of Israel. And we are, but uh, we get delayed, we complain, other things happen. And again, we've been receiving the heavenly bread called the manna, or the mun, for about uh, a year. And people complain, which is really fascinating. Like, why are they complaining? Like, this is the perfect food. It, it completely dissolves in your body. You don't have to go to the bathroom. Okay, some people don't like that. That's their private time to read books. That's when I read all my books for the show. Don't tell my guest, but that's my best time. But in any case, um, the, um, the, it was perfect food. You weren't hungry. You ate it. You were satisfied. It was heavenly food. And the people are complaining. And the complaint is fascinating. The complaint is, we remember the days in Egypt where we sat around the pot of meat and it was bubbling and we had all the meat we wanted and things were fantastic and bread as much as we wanted. So I actually taught the, this verse to my class this week. And I said, is this true or not? So they thought for a minute or two and they said, it can't be true, they were slaves. They got meat, bread, they got matzah. We all learned that part of the story. So I asked them, is it a lie or is it not a lie? So the answer is, of course, it's a lie, but it's an exaggeration. What do I mean by an exaggeration? When people want to get a point across, a lot of times they're afraid if they tell you the straight story, you're not going to be impressed. That's what's bothering you. You don't like the, the money so much. You want a different kind of food. Instead, you got to make up a whole story how in Egypt we had this and that. Not to say that you don't have a complaint. You may have a complaint, and it might even be valid. But you're convinced that if you just tell me the exact complaint, I won't listen to you. It's like kids coming home from school. Oh, teacher was this and crazy and that. And they make up stories. They blow up stories just so you'll listen to them. But when you start to, to file it down and figure out what's really bothering them, it's not really such a big deal. But we should take care of it. So the people are complaining about this mana. They want they, they, they want other food. Now, really what they wanted, they, they complain about meat. They didn't really want meat. As a boy in my class said, the man could taste like anything you wanted, so have it taste like meat. That wasn't their complaint. 
the complaint was that to live on heavenly food, it's a daily test. You have to be perfect always. In other words, if you didn't behave so well one day, instead of your mana landing outside your tent, maybe it was a block away, maybe it was two blocks away, maybe it was out in the field, depending how your day was. Very embarrassing. The children are saying, how come it took two hours today to get breakfast ready? Yesterday it only took uh, 10 minutes. The pressure of every day having to be perfect and finding out immediately. I tell my class, the last thing a child wants, right, is uh, the parents should get an exact accounting of every second of his day. Well, this at exactly 149, um, he was not looking in his book. At exactly 1032, he was talking to his neighbor. At exactly 1140, he didn't line up right away, went to recess. It make me crazy. Like, hello, right? You can't survive. We're not perfect. I mean, we're people. We're not robots. So this made a lot of people nervous. They did not like this idea of being perfect. So they wanted that God should give them um, and out, uh, buy from traveling salesmen. Look, there's millions of people. It's going to be traveling salesmen to sell them food. So they wanted that God should go ahead and allow them to buy food from traveling salesmen. So if I'm not perfect today, I got my storage house in the back of my tent, and I'll eat my flour and my whatever I bought, my cookies, who knows what. I'll eat all that stuff for a day or two, and then I'll fix myself up, and then I'll get my money when, I'll get my mud when, I'm, when I'm back good. So that God said, no deal. That's not happening. But you technically complained about meat. I'm going to give you meat. But let me tell you something. If you, t- if you eat that meat, it's going to cost you. And a lot of people died for eating that meat. And they knew. So what they were asking for was they didn't like the level of perfection that they had to be on in the desert. They didn't like it. Not all, but you had those who it was too much pressure for. So they asked, but they didn't ask straight. They didn't say it's too much pressure. They said, oh, we want meat. Okay, you should be careful what you ask for. You ask for your meat, you're going to get your meat, but it's going to cost you. Oh, and here comes my music. I had so many more things to add. I am not going to get there. So hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah. When we come back, we're going to discuss therapy according to God. A rabbi psychologist discuss life with Mordechai Wecker and Michael Weissman, PhD. Hold through the break, and we're going to be right back. I'll tell you what happened. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Can that itch be caused by stress? Now, we already know that stress can increase your odds of everything from colds to cancer. And now there's new research to suggest that stress can also make you itch. 
You see, it seems clear that stress activity is the immune system of mice, making them itch, and the experts say the same is probably true for humans. The study from the University of Medicine in Berlin and McMaster University in Canada found that stress can exacerbate skin disease by increasing the number of immune cells in the skin. Now, these immune cells are believed responsible for initiating and perpetuating skin diseases that can make you itch. The report in the American Journal of Pathology indicates that doctors were able to prevent stress-induced increases in white blood cells in the skin by blocking the function of the proteins that attract these immune cells to the skin in the first place. Now, more work is certain to come in this area of research. With another Prescription for Your Health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And while we're getting all our friends connected on Skype, so I wanted to add one more thing. Maybe my guests will hear as I start to talk about it. There's really a very interesting, oh, here comes one. There's a very interesting concept with the mun. The mun happens to be that it already came with a perfect taste. It says it tasted like, um, I guess, a bread fried in honey. But if you wanted, you could go ahead. Oh, I see everybody's here. We'll get to this psychological problem. We can't see them, right? Right. You guys That's can't see me. Right. I can see you. But okay. I am now joined by, and I have to guess who's on which side, by on my left, I have Rabbi Mordechai Wecker on my right. Can you hear right. from them, or are we not supposed to yet? I hear. I can hear it you now. You can yes. hear me. I'm just introducing you. Don't worry. We're all good. And Michael S. Weissman, PhD, on my right of the screen, um, authors of Therapy According to God, a rabbi and a psychologist discuss life. And probably there's a joke there, but I couldn't think of one. So, uh, Mordechai, Michael, how are you guys today? Doing well. Excellent. This should be really fun talking to two people at the same time. It's like teaching in class. It'll be quite uh, entertaining. But before we start, just for everybody, we'll go one at a time. Who is Mordechai Wecker? And then afterwards, I'm going to ask uh, the doctor who he is so we know who we're talking to. So, Mordechai, you're first. Who is Mordechai Wecker? Okay, well, I'm originally born and bred in Silver Spring, Maryland, outside of Washington. I attended the uh, local day school and high school, the Hebrew Academy of Washington, Yeshiva High School. Then I went on to Yeshiva for a number of years, studying in Yeshiva in uh, New York, Chavitz Chaim Yeshiva in Queens, and thereafter, Masifta Teferish Yushalayim, perhaps better known as the Yeshiva of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, a blessed memory, and my smicha is from Rabbi Feinstein. Um, after that, I spent the next some 40 years and counting in Jewish education, served many roles, teacher, rebbe, principal, and uh, now at this point in time, I'm uh, teaching full-time. Great. Now, um, Dr. Weissman, before I let you start, um, after I sent out one of my group emails, I get a, a, a text. I get a text back from an Aryeh Gibber who sends his regards from Norfolk, Virginia. Sounds familiar? Yes, Arya Gibber was my Chavrusa for four years uh, when he was here in Kolel. Uh, we learned together every week for four years. Well, he happens to be the president of the school that I teach in, so he asked me to send his warmest regards. So, I am sending his warmest regards. I appreciate that. Please send them back. That, now, I see, now I have to write that down to remember. But now that I, I said hello, who is Dr. Michael Weissman? 
Well, I'd like to say first, I'm a Jew. Yes. <laughs> um, well said. Which to me is a central part of my identity. Um, but uh, to be more uh, biographical, uh, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut, raised in an Orthodox shul. Um, although my family did not uh, keep kosher or keep Shabbos, um, I went to uh, Princeton University for my undergraduate degree and University of Massachusetts for my PhD and uh, then a postdoc in Syracuse, New York, Upstate Medical Center, came down to Virginia for a job and a few years later opened up my own private practice, solo, just me. And since then, I've been blessed with many people contacting me to join the practice. So we now have three offices and I think 15 therapists working for us. Amazing. Wow. And I'm a Baal Shuva as of 1998. Beautiful. So life is good for everybody. So let's, let's try to get through. Either I'll ask you each, we'll take turns. But of course, the first question is, again, we're talking to Rabbi Mordechai Wecker and Michael Erskine, okay. Ph.D., Therapy According to God, a rabbi and a psychologist discuss life. So the first question, of course, is why did you write the book? So let's, let's let the doctor go first, and then we'll, then we'll get uh, Rabbi Wecker to chime in. So, Michael, why did you write the book? Well, that's a complicated question, but I'll try and give a straightforward, simple answer. Um, I've always wanted to write a book. Um, it wasn't until I uh, became from and studied for many years, and suddenly, partly thanks to Rabbi Wecker, that I had the realization that everything I do in therapy has its roots in Torah. Even though I'm a secular psychotherapist, I don't proselytize or do you know uh, therapy only with Jews or anything like that. But um, I realized that even before I became a Baal Shuva, everything I was doing was strictly coming from the Torah. Rabbi Wecker taught a beautiful uh, Shabbos morning class on the Parsha for the two and a half years he was in Portsmouth. And I attended that class, often had comments that um, reflected what he was sharing with us in terms of giving vignettes from my clinical practice. And together, I think uh, he would agree we formed a good friendship. And uh, the opportunity arose for me to approach him saying, you want to write a book? And he said he's always wanted to, so the rest is history. We started to write, took two years, most of it long distance because he moved back to Baltimore. But we have um, a finished product. Hey, Rabbi Wecker, what would you like to add? Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to uh, add that the friendship that uh, I am privileged to have with uh, Dr. Weissman indeed began then and continues strong, even though it is long distance now. Uh, in addition to that, um, as uh, was mentioned, I have oftentimes wanted to write a book. I've uh, had the privilege of giving uh, weekly and sometimes biweekly shiurim on the Parsha or on other topics of Jewish studies for the last 40-some years. And I have often reflected on the fact that uh, perhaps I've learned something and taught something of value that might uh, be of interest to the uh, reading public. And, and I, as mentioned, I've always had that desire to really to put something in writing. And, you know, when the offer came through and the uh, collaborative effort uh, with uh, Dr. Weissman presented itself, um, I thought this is uh, something that I absolutely want to do. And uh, I think we both applied ourselves heart and soul and uh, very proud of the finished product. Thank God. Yes, you should be. I enjoyed reading it. So now let me ask you again both, and we'll take turns answering if you so choose. Um, why is it important 
that all the psychology that uh, that Michael is using in his practice, or maybe everybody's using in their practices, why is it important to know that all that has a basis in Torah? Why is that important? Let's uh, let's let Rabbi Wecker go first. Right. So, as a believing Jew, um, I I uh, firmly um, operate with the thesis that everything that's important in life has to have a basis in the Torah. The Torah is what validates and what objectifies what it is that is important in our lives and especially deal with something as important as life-changing, life-saving perhaps, as a direction in life, whether it be in the, uh, in the uh, office of a clinician or whether it be in a more general sense perhaps, has to be based upon the Torah. If it's not based upon the Torah, it runs the risk of being something that could be subjective, it could be something that is in truth, but only partially true. And this, the Torah itself, as I said, is, is what gives meaning and what gives uh, the standard, the imprint of God in what we do. Amazing. What a great answer. Um, Dr. Weissman? Dr. Weissman, can you I'm hear sorry, me? In your I'm having a hard time hearing you. I hear Rabbi Wecker perfectly well. I have a hard time hearing you, so can you say a little louder? Okay, so I'm going to repeat it, and if we can help uh, Rabbi Weissman, I mean Dr. Weissman's connection. I want to know why is it important that all the things you use in your clinic, in your psychology, why is it important that it has a basis in the Torah? Um, for me, it was sort of a reverse discovery um, that what I was doing, as I said earlier, um, ultimately I came to learn had its origins in Torah. Um, the reason I think it's so important is similar to what Rabbi Wecker is saying. Uh, the book starts out by saying that the Torah is a blueprint of the universe, God's handbook for living. And um, I believe that to the core, that uh, the Torah is meant to teach us um, how to live properly and uh, uh, how to I found this on the web. how to conduct our relationships, and how to uh, uh, best actualize our potential for growth and insight. And um, as the book goes along and demonstrates for character development, um, and ultimately to give us a sense Here's of what I found. to give us a sense of purpose. And um, I think that uh, the blend of psychotherapy and Torah. Uh, achieves that. Uh, even with my non-Jewish patients, I often explicitly mention Torah sources and Torah wisdom, and it's fascinating to see how uh, non-Jews and Jews alike are fascinated when they see how deep the roots go of the insights that we're trying to develop in therapy. Uh, so you actually answered a different question that I was uh, that I was wondering, and that is, well, I guess there's a few different ways of looking at it. But do you feel that a person who actually does study a lot of Torah—again, um, there's really two parts to this question—but somebody who studies a lot of Torah, does he have a leg up, or, uh, or if he hasn't inculcated anything he's uh, studied, so he's just the same as everybody else? Let's go backwards. Let's start with Dr. Weissman. Okay. Um, you were asking if the person who studies Torah has sort of a leg up. Well, I would say everyone who studies Torah, by definition, has a leg up in terms of people who don't study Torah um, because of the wisdom contained 
and the wisdom that's directly applicable to decisions we make on a day-to-day basis. Um, as we know, um, there are many Jews um, who learn a lot of Torah, but don't necessarily implement it in their daily lives. Um, it may occur in terms of relationship conflicts, or anger management issues, all kinds of issues that uh, the person's life is lived in a way that doesn't totally reflect what they've learned in the Torah. And those individuals sometimes um, can be very misleading and, and to themselves and to other people uh, when they're able to quote chapter and verse from the Torah, but they haven't learned to implement those insights into their life. Um, but when a person has Torah and then is receptive to uh, studying and implementing practical principles of living um, in the healthiest way possible, I would say yes, the Torah scholar has a huge leg up on a person trying to do the kind of work I do, but without Torah knowledge. Uh, I really have to ask Rabbi Wecker, but as a pause, Rabbi Wecker, I just want to know, um, and I'm not sure if you'd like to tell me this, Dr. Weissman, but um, have you ever had someone who should have a, a Torah background, and you go ahead and you say, well, you know, um, it says in the Torah this, and if you would follow that, you'd have, uh, your issue would be taken care of, and the person looks at you and says, you're my doctor, you're not my rabbi. Um. I try to be extremely careful to not make any reference to Torah to persons who I don't already know would be receptive to that kind of resource, that kind of information. Uh, it takes a fair amount of experience, if, if, if I say so, um, to make that distinction, um, because it runs the risk of exactly what you're saying. A person would confuse it with trying to proselytize, trying to preach that they should live a Jewish life. And um, I certainly don't try and convert my non-Jewish pa patients. Um, it's just a resource I introduce in therapy when appropriate. And uh, more often, uh, I'm introducing Torah concepts um, quite directly, but not explicitly stated as so in the therapy. So I can say the patient's getting the wisdom that I've acquired through years of experience and through learning Torah, um, and uh, they don't know it. <laughs> they don't know that that's where the source is coming from. Um, so one has to be very careful, very discriminating, uh, before you start to introduce Torah concepts explicitly into a therapy situation. Okay, Rabbi Wecker, I don't know how many things are on the tip of your tongue right now, but go ahead, share whatever you'd okay. like. Sure, thank you. Um, you know, there's a very interesting comment in the Gemara, in the Talmud, that says that for those that utilize the resource, the strength, the power of Torah, Torah can be a potion, an antidote for life, and for those that misuse it, it can be absolutely harmful. And the way that the great rabbi, the Vilna Gon, explains it is that Torah allows us, learning Torah allows us to, if you will, get in touch with our own deeply felt, deeply held feelings. So if someone is prepared to use the Torah, the great power, the great gift of the Torah, to improve himself, first and foremost, to make himself a better person, a better human being, of course, a better Jew, then Torah has that unique power to be able to uplift us, more so than any other one power that uh, is our disposal. On the other hand, 
if someone is not attuned the right way, if someone comes with, let's call some preconceived notion, someone comes with an attitude, an attitude uh, generally uh, that expresses itself in improper character traits, which is in essence what our book talks about, then the knowledge that uh, one has of Torah will not only not be helpful, but actually can sometimes serve as an impediment in that person's growth. So in answer to your question, I would say it's very important, first of all, in general, when it comes to learning Torah, that one should have a rabbi, a spiritual guide, one should not simply allow oneself to be left to one's own devices because it's so easy to, as I said before, use something that is highly subjective and uh, camouflage it as being the objective truth. But beyond that, we really need someone, uh, you know, you need a guide. You need also someone who can look at you objectively, which we have difficult, all of us have difficulty doing, and be able to point out something that should be very obvious, but because of the fact that uh, we, by nature, we humans by nature, try to justify us whatever we think or do, and can, uh, you know, disabuse us of certain notions, which I say otherwise can certainly prevent us from uh, becoming the better people that we all ultimately really strive to become. Yeah, so now I should really follow up, you know, fear is fear. So does anybody ever say to you, Rabbi Wecker, you're my rabbi, not my psychologist? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I've had that at times. I've had that at times. And my response to that is that, you know, I had one, one, of, my, uh, one, of, one of my spiritual guides, uh, the head of uh, the first yeshiva, host high school yeshiva I attended, so the Rosh Hashiva there, of Henoch Leibowitz, a blessed memory, um, said on more than one occasion, he said, you know, in order to fulfill the appropriate role that uh, the Torah um, lays out for us in terms of interpersonal relationships, we have to be a bit of, I emphasize the word, amateur amateur psychologist. I I have taken psychology courses. I do not have um, any type of advanced degree. I would never pretend to, uh, you know, assume that role. But on the other hand, when it comes to helping ourselves and helping others, yes, we need sometimes to be aware of the fact that, uh, you know, what we call psychology, right, uh, plays a role in human development. So I will always, if anyone questions me, say exactly what I uh, just said, which is I'm not a, uh, a certified psychologist. On the other hand, the Torah gives us the sensitivity, which should ideally be used inwardly, right, uh, internally rather than vis-a-vis others. But occasionally in a role, for instance, specifically as a principal, I've had it a few, inc- uh, few occasions that I've had to say something which elicited that response. And the response is, listen, I'm here to support you. But we have this and this issue that I think is important to bring to your attention, and uh, we go from there. Okay, great. So now, we, in our few minutes left, let's have some fun. In your book, um, you actually mentioned really towards the end of the book that there's really four what we'll call character traits. I think that's probably the best word we could use. There's four character traits that are, I guess, um, you know, overall what people need to work on and that they need to see where in the Torah these things come up. So, they happen to be, because I wrote them down, you wrote them down, they're arrogance, lust, jealousy, and anger. So, let's try this. Um, Dr. Weissman, pick one of the four. Tell us what's so rotten or difficult about that, rotten may be an unfair word, about that character trait. And then, Rabbi Weck, if you don't mind telling us where we see in the Torah how we're supposed to deal with it. So let's try that for fun. Okay, fair enough. Uh, I would choose anger as one that is probably um, um, easier to really illustrate 
and uh, respond to your question. If we take a look at, at anger, um, lots of people feel entitled to be angry. Um, they were either raised in an environment where anger was a dominant emotion. Uh, they feel that they can get what they want through getting angry at other people. Uh, they feel that the world should be the way they want it to be. They get angry when it isn't the way they want it to be. Um, anger as a character trait um, can be and always is extremely toxic to oneself and to the other persons in one's life. Um, to give one example, there's a Torah Pusik, an insight that says one should never discipline one's child in anger um, because you don't know who you're helping yourself by discharging your anger or doing what the child really needs. By discussing that kind of parenting issue, I'm able to help many patients, I would say most, understand that their anger, which they believe is a mechanism to get what they want, often to control others, in point of fact is the opposite, that the anger is in control of them, and that the only real power that we have is controlling our own, in this case, anger or character traits that cause us difficulties. Um, I think it was uh, Rabbi Salanter who said that it's more difficult to change a character trait than it is to split the Red Sea. Um, the old habits die hard, and you have to really help a person um, see, if I call it the yuck response, help them look at themselves and say, yuck, look at what I'm doing. Um, I'm driving people away. I think I'm exercising control, but really I'm out of control. Um, so that character trait needs to be addressed and ultimately, if not extinguished, at least minimized to the extent that the person is always able to identify it in its earliest stages and uh, take a different course of action in terms of dealing with whatever is triggering the anger. Okay, Rabbi Wecker, now, it's, now that we know what's wrong with anger, now it's your turn. Okay. Well, I think that uh, probably the most dramatic, at least to my mind, most dramatic example of how anger is almost always a destructive force can be seen in an event that uh, involved uh, our great leader Moshe. Moshe, of course, the uh, the greatest prophet, the greatest individual who ever lived, responsible for, um, of course, as the agent of God, bringing our ancestors out of Egypt, uh, giving us the Torah, etc. So the Torah tells us that um, his brother Aaron lost his two older sons. And Aaron, based upon that, did not follow what was the standard protocol of offering and consuming uh, sacrifices. So Moshe responded by speaking to Aaron's younger sons, but in a way that indicated anger. And the Talmud tells us that as a result of Moshe's anger, he forgot a law that he himself had taught the people. And we think about this paradigm. Of, of greatness that was our ancestor Moshe. We refer to our Torah as Torah's Moshe, the Torah of Moshe, and yet anger, because of the felt that he had felt anger in an inappropriate, inappropriate moment, in an inappropriate way, he made a mistake and uh, therefore misinterpreted the very law that he had taught. Now, of course, important to note that right after uh, Moshe had been, um, had been, um, um, apprised of his error, he immediately apologized. Great thing. But again, anger is a very, very destructive uh, element. 
the Talmud tells us another place that one who is angry is considered as if someone actually is idolatrous, as if he served idols. And the rationale that's offered by commentaries is that a person of fit of anger knows no bounds. You know, God himself, as it were, could uh, beseech him, right, to uh, cease and desist, and that individual will persist in his temporary tantrum because he is simply out of control. And one of the great uh, works, uh, the Orchot Sadikem, the Orchot Sadikem, goes so far as to say that anger is especially an issue. We spoke before about uh, Torah scholars, about uh, intelligent, wise people. Anger is especially a difficult test, a challenge for these people, because the smarter that a person is, the more rationalizations a person can develop in terms of why he has a right to be angry. So it's in a major pitfall. Maimonides, when he in general tells us that we have to follow the golden mean when it comes to character traits, not go too far to one side or the other. He says with anger, and addition, by the way, with uh, when it comes to arrogance, he says you go to the other extreme. Anger is something to avoid. Arrogance is something to avoid at almost all costs. Okay, time is flying. Um, they're giving me my signals. I have maybe two minutes left. So I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to give you each 30 seconds. Um, either you can leave us with something in 30 seconds, or you can tell me why we should, what we'll get out of your book. Again, Therapy According to God, a rabbi and a psychologist discuss life. And whoever gets to speak second will tell me how I can pick up the book. So, Dr. Weissman, 30 seconds. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I think that the um, central thing that I myself got out of the book in the process of writing it is a um, huge um, respect for how Torah can surface even and especially at those moments in therapy as a therapist where I don't know exactly how to intervene, somehow, always, something occurs to me that I've recently learned from the Torah, and aha, that's what this patient needs to hear. That's what is missing. I can't possibly overstate how often it happens that any Torah learning I've been able to acquire suddenly makes itself available to me in the context of therapy. Uh, to help move the therapy along in a positive way. Um, and to me, that's confirmation of the ultimate truth in the Torah. And, that uh, as long I'm as one is paying attention, my, my it will come running. to you and be useful as you deal with other people. Great. Thank you, Dr. Weissman. Rabbi Wecker, I really only have 30 seconds. Okay, I will do my best. You know, I think that all people will agree that our ultimate uh, desire in life is to be happy. The way to be happy, according to our Torah, is to live a redeemed life, is to live a life of service to Hashem, of service to God, of service to other people. And only the Torah, only the Torah understands the intricacies of the human psyche, of the human personality, of the various trials and tribulations and vicissitudes of life. Only the Torah, only by following the guidelines of the Torah, and that, of course, includes the concept of, of uh, modifying our character traits, only by following the, that, those ways can we hope for that happiness, because otherwise we will mistake levity 
and foolishness for happiness, and the happiness is really what we all desire. So this I, is really for our benefit, not just the benefit of others, not just, you know, so to speak, to make God happy as if that were different than what would be appropriate for us. It's for our good. It's for our good, and that's why the Torah was given to us. Perfect. So now, how do I get your book? Okay, the book is available. First of all, the publisher is Mosaic of Press from Israel. The distributor is Feldheim. The Feldheim website here in America, Feldheim Publications, has it available. And I just checked not long before we go on, before I went on, and that is it is also available on Amazon. Fantastic. So those are a few ways to get the book. Otherwise, do a search. You'll find it. God willing. Very good. Rabbi Wecker, Dr. Weissman, thank you so much for spending your time and teaching us so much. Psychology, Torah, all together. The blend was fantastic. Thank you so much and have a great Shabbos. Thank you. You as well. And the music is now coming. I hope you learned a lot from that. My music is coming, right? Okay, here comes the music. So we have one segment left. We'll be joined by Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. When we come back, we're joined. Ah, you're joined by Rabbi Tzvi. And we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Andy. And I'm David. Join us for fun and adventure on our new show, Podquesters, where we fight through imaginary battles and pray to the dice gods for good rolls. Yes, it's an epic sweeping adventure. We try to fulfill our destinies without driving the Dungeon Master crazy. I thought that was the point. Anyways, check us out here on NewRadioMedia.com, Friday's Podquesters. See you there. Many times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's the... <laughs> get umped. <laughs> can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. What's up, this is your boy Walter Jones, also known as Zach, the original Black Ranger, and you are geeking out with Geek Tamin Weekly at New Radio Media. It's worth the time. The BG song, Staying Alive, just might help someone you know stay alive. It's one of those beats you just can't get out of your head once it's there. And it turns out the disco song has 103 beats per minute which happens to be the perfect number to maintain the rhythm for performing CPR. A study out of Illinois found that doctors and medical students who listened to the song while they were practicing CPR not only performed flawlessly, but they also remembered the technique five weeks later. The keys to CPR are performing the technique aggressively, that is pushing hard enough and pushing on the chest fast enough to force the blood to where it needs to go. So when it comes to proper technique, it turns out that compressing the chest to the beat of staying alive really can help the victim stay alive. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. you learned a lot in that last segment that we're still holding on Rabbi Jonas and Goldson. Hopefully they will get in touch. Did we get in touch yet? Still trying. So while we're waiting to try to get in touch, um, before the doctor and rabbi came on, um, I want to tell you something fascinating which gets all into psychology and the Torah. So it's like a perfect uh, follow-up. And that is that the manna, the man, had the ability to taste like something fried in honey. It was like perfect. 
But the Torah also says you had the ability to play with the texture and grind it and pound it and do whatever you wanted. And it would change the taste, or you had the ability to change the taste. So the question is, you were allowed to make the man taste like anything you chose. Is that good or not good? So I think the answer with some of the things we talked about psychologically is, of course you could. Of course you have the ability to. But sometimes if we're always searching for more and we never look inside ourselves and say, I'm happy in the position I am right now. Recently I was discussing with my wife. Uh, Is everything perfect? Of course not. Um, Do I have all the things I need? Of course not. But at my stage in life, can I be satisfied with who and what I am? If you have the ability to be satisfied, okay, it tastes like fried honey. Very good. So if I can be satisfied, I will be a happy, successful person. If I am not satisfied, I'm always looking for more, and I always need something else, and I always need to complain, I'll never be happy. That's not a good thing. So that's my psychology uh, mana talking about this week's Torah portion. So it looks like my friend is not here right now. So we are going to move on. So I think it's Kelsey. Kelsey is ready. We're up to our next letter, the seventh letter of the Jewish alphabet, the letter Zion. Makes a Z-type sound, even though it's early in the alphabet. Um, It is a Zion. It is numerical value is seven. And um, my word this week I thought of was the word zechut, or zechus. Zechus means a merit. So uh, I, I had an interesting uh, story that I saw. Talk about merit. As whenever we talk about merit, we discuss merits, the merits of the fathers. I, I'm who I am because of who my parents were and who my grandparents were. And I, and even when we pray throughout our prayers, we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because we want those merits to help us. That God should give us what we need. So to remember the idea of merit, I decided I got a story for you. So the story goes like this. There was, a, uh, there was a ringleader in a circus, and he was looking for a new lion tamer. So he put an advertisement in the paper. A guy comes, and he says, yeah, I am your man. So the ringleader says, well, can you make the lions jump through a hoop with fire? Ah, I can do that in my sleep. Can you make a pyramid with lions? Yeah, I love making pyramids. My favorite. And they're going through all the stuff, and the guy says he can do everything. So he says to him, he says, where'd you learn how to be such a fantastic lion tamer? He says, I learned everything from my father. Wow, amazing. You learned from your father. See, like your father, your father was a good lion tamer. My father was the best lion tamer. Oh, yeah, I forgot to ask you, you know, everybody knows, you know, you, you stick your head in a lion's mouth. Have you ever stuck your head in a lion's mouth? So the guy says, yeah, once, once. Why did you stick your head in the lion's mouth? Only once. I was looking for my father. Ta-da! Okay, you're supposed to laugh. Okay, here, I got a few. ah, There we go, a few laughs. Very good. So anyways, um, you talk about we get from our fathers, we benefit from our fathers. That's how we'll have a schos, a merit. We want merits from our fathers. Okay. Um, I figure, you know, I haven't done current events, and I didn't uh, get everybody up to speed how I do current events, but um, two interesting—well, we'll have time for one—a very interesting current event, um, and I did not print the whole article, so I don't remember the whole story, but it, it was in the papers last week. I say papers. It was online. So there was a, uh, there was a person in the hospital, and his, he was in a terrible crash, and his face and everything was barely recognizable, and— and the hospital called in a family, and they said, we have your relative here. Could you, uh, 
could you come see? And they come, and I don't know. It doesn't really look like him. We don't know who it looks like. Well, you know, we're pretty convinced that this is your relative. So, um, since we're convinced that this is your relative, he's not really going to live. Like, there's no life for him. We would like your permission to pull the plug. And the family was all upset, and come on, and yeah, they doctors and stuff. And in the end, uh, they gave the hospital permission. Well, a week later, the relative walks into their house alive and well. And not because he got out of the hospital bed. The guy in the hospital bed, who was not their relative, is dead. So it leads to a very fascinating idea. Forget about, yes, pulling the plug, not pulling the plug. That's not even the discussion. There happens to be a very interesting set of laws that if a wife, if her husband disappears and she wants to get remarried and she can't get remarried because she doesn't have a divorce document, so there's rules and regulations how to decide if the husband died and witnesses and what they have to see. And people have a lot of issues with this. Uh, with the Twin Towers, there are a lot of issues. Come on, how do you know? We have this proof, we have that proof. For sure he died. He called me from the Twin Towers that are collapsing. For sure he's not alive anymore. And the rabbis have very, very strict rules when we can say we know he's dead and when not. And this is just like an eye-opener that people could be convinced because the hospital said, don't ask why they didn't do DNA stuff, I have no idea. But people could be convinced, yeah, he's for sure dead, we have proof, it's him, maybe he had a wallet, who knows what they had to for sure prove and know that the guy was dead. And it was the wrong guy. So forget about the hospital's getting sued from the other family that you pulled the plug on somebody without our permission, you didn't even contact us, forget about that. But we need to know that when we're so convinced that something must be true, um, just because we're always convinced does not always automatically make it so, like in this unusual case where people thought the guy was dead, he was not dead. So when the rabbi says, we don't know if he's dead, we need to prove it. But in any case, we got to wrap it up. Uh, I got to thank all my sponsors and listeners. You know I couldn't do without you. Big team today. Big shout out to everybody making the double Skype work. Thank you to everybody, to Kelsey, Zach, Cole, Ethan, Stephen, and Alana. Um, I hope I left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi C. Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.